everyone. I once saw a cartoon that featured a church and outside of the church was a placard advertising its Christmas services. Walking past it were two women and in the caption underneath one of them was saying to the other look at that Mavis they're even bringing religion into Christmas. It's not difficult these days to come to the same conclusion. Once you've decorated the tree bought the presents had Santa deliver them cooked the turkey you finally settled down on Christmas Day Front of the TV for the Queen's speech. And you breathe a sigh of relief. You haven't forgotten anything or anyone. But have you? What about the Christ of Christmas? After all, it's his birthday. But the songs celebrating his birth are so easily drowned out by all the competing voices at Christmas time. And on these past three Sunday evenings, if you've been here every week, we've tried through music and drama, word and image, prayer and praise, to hear another voice saying, Christmas is all about me. It is the voice of God which reminds us that Christmas was his idea, his gift of love to our world. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. Christmas is all about me. It is the voice of God's Son, heard and seen in a baby in a manger. Christmas is all about me. But the voice of Jesus speaks to an audience, to people. The first people to hear are shepherds, informed by an angel. Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And the shepherds, hearing the message, go and see. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And then they go and tell. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And others here, and all who heard it, were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. This is how it should be. For the good news of great joy is for all the people. All the people then, and all the people now. Them, and us, you, and me. And so, from my perspective, I could also say... Christmas is all about me. But if Christmas is all about me, then I must respond to the Christ of Christmas. And you must respond to the Christ of Christmas. And how we respond to him may not be the same. And this we see in the events following the birth of Jesus, which are recorded by Matthew in his Gospel account that we just heard read to us. Those contrasting responses to the Christ of Christmas. We sometimes get confused and compressed images of what happened at that first Christmas time from Christmas cards and carols and paintings. Yes, the shepherds were the first to arrive at the scene, but it seems value they left, or even while they were still there, 
These wise men appeared and the shepherds had to move out to make space for them. And we have this crowded, stable scene. But Matthew's account makes it clear that when these next visitors arrived on the scene, events had moved on by many months, maybe as much as 18 months later. Jesus is now described as a child, not a baby. We learn that his family are now living in a house, not a stable. So who were these strange visitors? Again we see, we three kings of Orient are. May well be wrong on every count. We don't even know there were three. There were three gifts, but ten men could have clipped together to bring three gifts. We can't really be sure. Did they come from the Orient? Certainly not from China, probably from somewhere like modern day Iran or Iraq. Were they kings? Almost certainly not. Uh, Wise men is a better description. But our modern translations translate it from a Greek word in the original. And we have this rather strange word, magi or magi, or how do you say it? Doesn't make much sense. Until you add a C. Then you get magic. And then you get a drift of who these men were. What they were. They weren't wise men in the sense of intelligent particularly, but members of a priestly caste who were experts in astrology, interpretation of dreams, various other secret arts. And one day, or night, they see a star, not in the east, but in its rising, that somehow sets them off on a journey that they believe will lead them to a newborn king of the Jews. How they know this, we can only speculate. The point is, they set out on a search. A search for truth. And God uses all sorts of means to start all sorts of people on all kinds of searches. Means that are part of their own culture, part of their own religion. For within each one of us here, and every human being, there is something that prompts inquiring minds and restless feet. St. Augustine put it well. Thou, O Lord, hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. So we follow our star, whatever it may be, wherever it may lead us. But while stars can get us moving, heading in the right direction, they cannot lead us to our ultimate destination. And the one is the end of all our searching. In fact, as happened with the Magi, we may end up at the wrong destination. Where else would human logic direct a search for the newborn king of the Jews than the palace of King Herod in the capital city, Jerusalem? But they discover it's the wrong place. The star only takes them so far. They need something more. They need the scriptures, the ancient Hebrew scrolls, God's word, spoken to his people centuries before to direct them to the right place. Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. Thankfully, not another Bethlehem in the tribe of Zebulun, which was miles away north. But just half a dozen miles away, six miles in fact, down the road from Jerusalem. And so the Magi set off on the last leg of their journey and they finally arrive at Bethlehem, the little town, more like a village actually in those days. And the reappearance of the star over the place where the child was staying confirms the exact location. They are overjoyed and bowing down in worship, they present their gifts to the baby Christ. Star and scripture together lead them to Christ 
the king. Here then is the first response to the Christ of Christmas, seeking the king in order to worship him. And I gently and simply ask you this evening, has your search brought you yet to this place, to this person, where you realise Christmas is all about me, and where you lay down your arms before Jesus the King? Because you see, it's not the only response you can make to the Christ of Christmas. There is another king in the story, one whom the Magi meet when they arrive at his palace, King Herod. Herod the Great, as he was known, was a man of ambition and ability. But he was also power-hungry with a megalomania that turned to paranoia in his final years as he murdered his own wife and two of his sons. And so when these strange visitors turn up at his door, inquiring about the birth of a king of the Jews, Herod, knowing no babies have been born to him and his family, is determined to eliminate this potential rival. However, he disguises his true intention from these visitors. He says, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. He, like the Magi, is seeking the king. But for a very different reason. Here is a second response to the Christ of Christmas. Seeking the king in order to destroy him. Very few of us are born kings. Or become kings. But we want to be kings, don't we? King of our own lives. Our own sphere of influence. However small it may be. For in our hearts, we are rebels against God and his authority. But our problem is this. We want to be kings, but we are made to be subjects. We are not kings, God is. We are made to find our fulfilment in being his obedient servants his close friends, even his children. But none of us are content to do so. We all yearn to be king, to be God. So faced with God's son, King Jesus, hearing his voice say, Christmas is all about me, we continue our rebellion. And although we might not attempt to literally destroy him, we choose to ignore him. And in our heart of hearts, we would prefer he were not there. But there is no way we can get rid of him. Just as Herod couldn't destroy Jesus, the Magi being warned by God in a dream of Herod's intentions, return home by an alternative route. And Herod, realising he's been outwitted, sends his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the baby boys two years old and under. However, it is all in vain. For Jesus and his parents also warned by God, have already escaped down south to Egypt. But it is not the last attempt to destroy Jesus. It's not the last we'll see of soldiers. In the second part of the story, we'll see that it ends with more soldiers assigned to kill Jesus. And this time, they will be successful. Before we come to that I'm pretty sure if you took a poll of the population of Edinburgh and asked them which of these do you prefer, Christmas or Easter, then Christmas would probably win by a Princess Street mile. The shopkeepers, of course, 
prefer Christmas because they make far more profits from Christmas gifts than Easter gifts unless they happen to sell chocolate. And likewise, children all over the world prefer Christmas and the whole variety of gifts they receive unless, of course, they fall into the Augustus Gloop category not to be recommended. But I guess that most of us prefer Christmas to Easter because we prefer images of birth to those of death, especially the kind of death that happened at Easter. Maybe even now you're sitting there wondering, why do you have to introduce such a painful subject at Christmas time? Can't we just focus on the baby Jesus? Surely what our hungry and needy world needs to know, they need to know, it's Christmas. But while the birth of Jesus was essential and wonderful, his life and mission would have been a failure without his death. That's why in this book, the Bible, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus. Only two of the four say anything, really, about the circumstances of his birth. But all four of them devote most of their writing and accounts to the last two weeks before the death of Jesus. That's why the big question for the people of our world, whether well-fed or hungry, is do they know it's Easter? Though I can't imagine a bunch of pop stars ever making such a record. So why is Easter so important? Why did the baby Jesus who was born, up in Bethlehem, was born in Bethlehem, grew up to be the man Jesus who died in Jerusalem. Ever thought about it? Why couldn't Jesus just have spent decades doing those amazing miracles? Maybe travelling the world with his astounding teaching and finally have died peacefully in old age in Nazareth surrounded by his family and friends. Or have lived forever. Why? Why was Jesus killed? Well, there are two parts to the answer, two sides to the question. First of all, human beings were responsible for the death of Jesus. In blunt terms, we did it. As we saw in the first part of our story, Herod and his soldiers were the first to try and kill Jesus. But they weren't the last. When at the age of 30, Jesus embarked on his public mission in his hometown, the people he'd grown up with was so enraged by what he said that they tried to t take him outside town and push him off a cliff. And as he travelled from place to place, he not only attracted huge crowds, but also growing hostility, not least from the religious establishment who saw him as a dangerous heretic who threatened their power base. And it wasn't long before they decided that the only solution was to kill him. And so in an unholy alliance with the occupying Roman authorities, he was arrested, falsely accused, and finally condemned to die by crucifixion. So who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, aroused huge controversy. Many accused him of anti-Semitism. They said his film blamed the Jews for doing it. Gibson responded by pointing out that he only had one part, acting part, in the film. 
He said, mine was the hand that held the nails as the soldier drove them into the hands and feet of Jesus. I was responsible, he was saying. And so were we all. We did it. Like the crowd when the Roman governor Pilate took Jesus out and said, what shall I do with Jesus, the king of the Jews? We also respond, away with him, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. We want to run our own lives, our own way. We did it. And yet, it was for such rebels and rebellion that Jesus died. And that brings us to the other side of the question why. The other part. Yes, we did it, but God planned it. The death of Jesus was no accident. It was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus was the man who was born to die. He chose to come to earth as a baby at Christmas time. And he chose to die on a cross at Easter time. The only truly innocent victim. Who being in very nature God, we heard, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He died in our place, bearing our rebellion and wrongdoing, for our forgiveness, so that we might be restored to the relationship with God for which we were made. That was God's wonderful plan, which began at Christmas and ended at Easter. Not with a cross, however, but with an empty tomb. For God declared his mission to be successful by raising him from the dead. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But what is your response, my response to Jesus now? Just as at that first Christmas, there are still contrasting responses to him. There are still those who actually hate him. In an article in The Guardian just a few days ago, about the recently released film, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, entitled, Narnia represents everything that is most hateful about religion. Polly Toynbee writes, Of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? No, we didn't. Yet he did. Some five years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was another man who hated him intensely, very angry about him, the claims about his death. He stood and guarded the coats of those who threw the stones that killed the first Christian martyr. And he hounded and arrested the followers of Jesus, wherever he could find them. But one day, one dramatic day, on a visit to a neighbouring country to round up more followers of Jesus, he had a direct and dramatic encounter with the risen Jesus. His life was turned around and he became the greatest advocate of the Christian faith. Years later, Paul, for that was his name, wrote a letter to some fellow Christians in which he described his way of life, a personal statement. He said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. 
I ask you, at this Christmas time, can you say the same? What is your response to the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say to the Christ of Christmas, Christmas is all about me. Can you say to the Christ of Easter, Easter is all about me.